Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, David A. Simon, visiting assistant professor of law at the University of Kansas School of Law and project researcher at the Honkin School of Economics. In this installment of the podcast, which we have called Ex Cathedra, we will be taking a step back from actual legal articles to talk to senior scholars about scholarship. We were interested in how senior scholars develop their research agenda, who influenced them and why. In particular, we wanted to know how junior scholars influenced the senior scholars and for what reasons. To dis- discuss the topic today, my Yes, is Professor June Carbone. She is the inaugural holder of the Robina Chair in Law, Science, and Technology at the University of Minnesota Law School. She's an expert in family law, assisted reproduction, property, and law, medicine, and bioethics. <clears throat> She's taught courses in contracts, remedies, financial institutions, civil procedure, and feminist jurisprudence. I don't know if I've left anything out, but that's a lot. Uh, Professor Carbone, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Well, happy to be here. So I wondered if you could start today by telling us a little bit about um, how your interest developed, whether that was in law school or afterwards, and and how you became interested in family law and some of the topics you're researching today. Well, let me start with family law. So I started teaching at George Mason University in Arlington, Virginia, a very long time ago. And it was a different era. So I was at the Justice Department. I had a friend who applied with them. She turned them down and and said, why don't you talk to June? So they called me up. I went and interviewed in February. I had a job offer in May. I never went to the meat market. I never interviewed anywhere else. I've switched schools since. But, uh, I mean, I sort of landed in legal academia with through uh, the things younger people do today. Now, I had written two articles, though which was very unusual in that era. And my two articles were on things I had done in practice. Uh, one was more academic. The other was more report on, on a case I worked on. Uh, that put me ahead of the game. But then I was teaching contracts. I knew nothing about contracts. And the family law professor said to me, uh, how about doing a contract analysis of alimony? Back in the 80s, not much written about it. And I thought, oh, great, I can get my head around contracts by doing a contract analysis of alimony. The contract literature in the 80s was overwhelming. Family law, there were three major articles, and that was it. And it was like writing on a clean slate to do a different kind of scholarship than what was there in the family law literature. So that's how I got started. And did... What drew your interest to um, family law in particular? And um, specifically, were there any professors, senior people uh, at Yale who reached out to you and said, hey, you might think about writing about this? Nope. (laughs) So when I, first of all, again, it's a different era. It's pre-internet. The only person who I ever really worked closely with at Yale was Dan Freed on criminal justice reform. And indeed, one of the articles I'd written uh, was on bail. And it was, um, uh, I had written this article on bail when I was in law school that started, uh, oh, before the year 1000 and worked its way up to the present. And when I was at the Justice Department and got bored, uh, which is after Reagan was elected, before he was sworn in, when uh, people stopped suing the federal government, 
Um, there's a very brief window, and I took it out, the paper, brushed it off, was on maternity leave, and uh, started working on it again. And so um, if I had wanted to do criminal law, I would have gone back to Dan Preet. Uh, but, you know, at that point in my life, I was very shy. <laughs> and you're talking to Yale professors, which never occurred to me. And uh, although Dan Preet was incredibly supportive and really liked that paper, uh, I did not talk to him about it when I was trying to get it published. So it sounds like you didn't have uh, very much support when you started out in your career. I wonder how, as you, especially in an era when I think fewer women were in the legal academy, how you maneuvered with more senior people, how you struck up conversations or debated articles or ideas with them, and how that shaped you going forward. Yeah, and I do want to emphasize it was a different era. And I would say as a woman breaking in, the secret is I was simply better qualified than the guys at every school I got hired at. Uh, so, you know, I started at George Mason. I had already written two pieces. The school was provisionally accredited, but very quickly got full AP approval when I started. Uh, I had outproduced uh, the young men on tenure track when I, the day I started. Um, and so I was never given a hard time about scholarship. After four years, my husband got uh, a job in California. I got hired at Santa Clara. I got hired to start on tenure track. I was not yet tenured with people who had written less than I did. By the time I moved out there, I'd written four articles. Uh, I was being compared to people who had not started writing anything when they started. So my story is that I was simply ahead of the game. And uh, again, if I were to see what people do today, it's skinny to get the best school you can get at when you start. Not me. I waltzed into places because, uh, you know, I needed a job. Uh, I happened to connect with people in the Bay Area. I got a job. I interviewed a few places, got one offer, didn't go through the meat market. Again, I was never part of the kind of planning to get into the academy we have today. So once I was in, I started writing. Uh, I sent things off. I got, you know, and what I did try to do was to send drafts. Uh, so my, uh, I wrote an article on... Um, attorney's fees, because I worked on a case at the Justice Department that went to the Supreme Court, and I sent it to senior scholars I had never met and didn't know and asked for comments. Uh, I, that was productive. Uh, but I would say that it was years later that I really got to know the people in family law. Years after I'd been writing, had gotten tenure, uh, was establishing myself. Then as I began to go to conferences, I began to meet people. But that happened later. I think um, in today's world, it should be happening much earlier. So it sounds like um, one of the things you did was reach out to senior people who might have an interest, an overlapping interest, in something you were working on, said, hey, could you take a look? And then what did the conversation, how did the conversation go from there? Did you uh, just take their comments and run with them, or did you develop relationships with them, working relationships with them that you could draw upon as you move forward? So here's the thing that changed, and uh, we should get, you know, I we should move into something closer to the modern era. So the first three or four articles I wrote, every single one was in a different field. I mean, I wrote about attorney's fees, I wrote about criminal law, I wrote about... Um, 
uh, federally funded agencies, which is really about bankruptcy, but not formal bankruptcy. It was administrative. I mean, it was its own sui generis field. So it was like every article was a new subject. I don't recommend that. And then I started writing about family law. And once I started writing about family law, I got to know people. So at the time I started writing about family law, there were really about three or four people in the field I adored. Uh, Marianne Glendon, uh, who moved to Harvard. Uh, Martha Feynman, who started at Wisconsin and moved to Columbia. Uh, Herman Hill Kay, out at Berkeley. Uh, and uh, Joan Krauskopf, uh, who ended up at Mizzou. And uh, over the years, I got to know each of them. Now, note, when you describe these people, these are four really, really different people who think really, really differently from each other. Um, in that era, I would say it didn't matter so much. Uh, you know, the world was less polarized politically and more as a question of women trying to get their foot in the door. But eventually, Martha Feynman had these series of the Feminist Legal Theory workshops uh, that she had at Columbia, and I started going to them in the 90s. And I got to know Martha, and I got to know her because I did a review of her book. I had absolutely no idea when I started writing um, who she was or anything about her except on the basis of what she had published. And I did a review of her book, and she loved it, partly because she felt I had captured something that her critics hadn't about where her work fit in feminism, not in family law, where I, I think where it fit in family law is fairly clear, but how it fit as feminist theory. And she was really pleased and started inviting me to the workshops. And that's basically in the 90s. And that's when I started getting to know the people. And one of the bits of Tensions at the time, by the way, was, um, you know, so the first article we did at Divorce, which I did with Peg Grinig, who is my colleague at George Mason, um, was uh, more about doctrine. And we noticed that people started paying more attention to us if we talked about other scholars instead of about cases. That was one of the things that kind of dawned on us. Uh, <laughs> make, your, make the other scholars more prominent. And that was kind of more fun. So I started to do that. And by the time I was out at St. Clair and it was the 90s, I got money to host a conference. And then I got to invite the people I admired, uh, Nancy Polygoff, for example, uh, to come out. And, you know, when you start inviting people to things, they also notice you. So that's a good thing to do. So one of the um, things that you mentioned, aside from inviting people to things, um, for the junior people that maybe don't have a... Uh the budget for the position to invite people to um, conferences or workshops. You did mention um, going to conferences and being active by writing review articles. Are those things that you think junior scholars would benefit from today if they, if they continue to do the things that you did when you were coming up? Yes, and it's something that I find when I talk to junior people both now and in the past, there's attention. Uh, how much time should you spend going to conferences versus uh, <laughs> going down and getting out the next law review article? And especially if you, you know, for me, at, at once I had tenure, I spent a lot of time going to conferences where I was invited to write symposium pieces. And um, what I started doing was to write these pieces which were solicited and then fold them into my books. 
And I really stopped worrying about place, uh, law review placements. But if you have a tenure and you are concerned about sending out unsolicited articles, then going to conferences, especially if you're expected to write something new for the conference, can be a big distraction. Now, I find it helpful, but I don't really care about placement. I mean, I write a lot, and I'm producing several articles a year, and um, I'm able to produce more with a guaranteed placement than I shape the article for the placement rather than for, and what I want to say, rather than for, um, you know, law review uh, placement uh, playing that game. So I think that's one of the questions you have to ask. Uh, how much time is it taking? Is this a healthy distraction from what we do as your main work? And so, uh, although I think getting to know people, the people in your field, are uh, really, really important. I mean, I will say senior people, you know, we look at, at whether we know the person and then we decide whether to read it. So when I read things now, uh, I read something that is directly on point to what I'm writing. I read things in my field that intrigue me or I feel I have to know. And I read things by people I like. <laughs> so, um, you know, there's a certain percentage of what I read, I read because I know who the author is. Uh, and that's really important. For young people, I think uh, getting a reputation as up and coming is something you often do by meeting people. But you also have to have written the work. I mean, I think the work you write is an entree. And if you haven't done the pieces you want to establish your reputation, getting that done is critical. And I do that first. But, you know, half people we hire now have already done it before they get their first tenure track position. You mentioned uh, a few minutes ago that when you started out, you were sampling different areas of law and each project was a totally new endeavor and you were learning about a new area of law and you did that for a while before you centered on family law and some of your other future work. I wonder how important you think it is for younger scholars to have a coherent picture of what their research is going to look like, especially given that when we conduct research, things change so frequently. Get interested in one topic, and then you decide, well, you go down a rabbit hole over here, and now you're interested in this other topic, and that's more on point to what you think is relevant, so you do that. So how important do you think it is to have this package that you can show to other people, say, this is the kind of expert I'm going to be, this is where I'm going to be working in? Well, I think writing, you know, your first major piece, and by major I mean a significant law review article, is a ticket of entry to the conversations in the academy. So I think you have to write that first piece and get it done. And today, with a lot of programs supporting your people, you may want um, a cohort of people who are new, who have are interested in the same things you are. That's great fun. I mean, that just makes it. Uh, much more fun to be in the academy. But after you get that first piece done, I think there's a question about what field you're in. So for me, it came actually after I got tenure. After I got tenure, I decided to write a book. And it took me six months just to get the hang of the different style of writing a book. It took about five years from the time of the glimmer of the idea 
to the time the book actually came out. But at the end of that five-year period, uh, I knew family law. I knew family law in a comprehensive way. And I found that after that period of doing the book, of doing the longer project, and this wasn't a textbook. This was it's called From Partners to Parents, The Second Revolution of Family Law. And it was my ideas on what was happening to family law and how it fit into a historical and economic and cultural perspective. But when I finished it, having talked about divorce and custody and parentage and, you know, most of the major topics at the time, I really knew family law. And I found after that, if I wanted to write a new piece, I didn't have to do, I wasn't starting from scratch on research. I could have an idea and sit down and write it. And I knew what was out there, uh, what I was finding in the cases, what the structure of the argument was going to be. And so my productivity increased very, very dramatically. I remember saying to a junior colleague at the time, you know, I think about a piece a year, this is in that era, uh, while on tenure track is about right. But after you get tenure, you should be writing more, not less. Uh, two articles a year. And he looked shocked because, um, you know, my, my junior colleague, who's very good, by the way, agonized over every word and every piece, and he couldn't imagine writing two pieces a year. And now I write, you know, I often write a half dozen in a year. Uh, some of it is word processing and the internet really helped. But some of it is, you know, my, my first piece after I got a tenure track position, by the way, I wrote out by hand over the summer. I handed it, and we called them secretaries in those days, in August, and she got me back the type draft of one article in November. So <laughs> you could not write several articles a year in that era. Now you can. Um, but it's, it's not just word processing. It's also knowing the field. So, you know, uh, this year I will have write, written three or four articles on the same subject. They will say different things. But the research for each of them uh, with, um, let's see, uh, you know, I wrote two symposium pieces. Uh, they are on the same topic. They have all the same footnotes. <laughs> but they do say something different. And each is designed to address uh, a topic that fits a different symposium. But the fact I've done the research, which is also going to be in a book, makes it much, much faster. If you write a different article, and every, you know, if every article you write is on a different body of law, <laughs> you have to do the research only. Uh, I'd like to turn for a moment now to current scholarship in your field. What are some of the articles from junior people that draw your interest? And, and do they sustain it and why? Well, Jessica Clark is my, my hero. Uh, I tell people, uh, so Jessica is my junior colleague who recently left Minnesota to Vanderbilt. And I was at a mentoring session for family law scholars. And I said, hey, for uh, ambitious faculty at Minnesota, the, uh, the buzzword is, what would Jessica do? And Jessica has mastered the art of the major law review article. She's placed, uh, pieces recently in both Harvard and Yale, but her, her, her minor placements are in NYU, Iowa. Um, and uh, she, she persuaded uh, Bolt to, to do a 100-page law review article, which is extraordinary. And so I am absolutely inspired by Jessica whenever I think about what is it that makes a great law review article. And she's distilled it 
And um, it's very much a combination of a topic that captures the interest of today's law students, uh, distilled to a single idea across a number of different types of cases that makes you think differently about the topic. So let me give you an example. Her piece in Yale has uh, the title Immutability. And it's about the question, how important is the concept of immutability, such as the immutability of sexual orientation, to protection, uh, anti-discrimination protection under Title VII and other anti-discrimination laws. And of course, there's a full debate uh, within the field of sexual orientation about that topic. But the thing she does that is just brilliant is to take the idea and apply it to things like religion, obesity, criminal arrest records. So on the one hand, these things are part of identity. Uh, if you have a criminal arrest record, or if you have, uh, if you were obese, perhaps for because of genetic factors, that may in fact be very hard to change. But uh, it certainly isn't something you were born with. Uh, in some unalterable way, does it matter? And so she uses. Um, those different kinds of concepts of something that is part of an identity of who a person is today to challenge the traditional constructs of immutability and the concept of civil rights. And it's, it's just, it's an absolutely original piece that gets you to think about an important topic in different ways. So Jessica is my absolute model for how to write a law review your comments suggest that one of the criteria for a good law review article is, of course, novelty, um, but in a way that's somewhat formulaic. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about the different types of law review articles, aside from the kind that Jessica writes, <clears throat> that you find particularly interesting or helpful? For example, um, do you find articles that present empirical quantitative data about the number of divorces or the number of adoptive parents or whatever the statistic may be, do you find those add to the discussion in the same way or are they more or less helpful? Oh, well, I, 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 I think of myself as a consumer of empirical work. So in the books I've done uh, with Naomi Kahn, um, Red Families versus Blue Families, which got a lot of national attention, and Marriage Markets, How Inequality is Remaking the American Family, uh, what we're doing is uh, a synthesis of empirical work from a variety of disciplines and then putting it into a legal context in a way that we hope will shed light on uh, legal developments. So for example, in marriage markets, um, uh, which is interesting because sociologists and law professors tend to point to different parts of the book as of interest. But in marriage markets, the part sociologists responded to is we explained how uh, even though the law of custody is the same for married and unmarried couples, uh, women initiate the vast majority of divorces and breakups and more so the poorer the couple. 
And if you're married and you want the divorce, then you bear the burden and expense of going to court, and the court is going to grant a divorce without giving the father at least visitation, if not full cut, full cut custodial rights. But if you're unmarried and you go to court, um, and, and you're unmarried rather, and there's a breakup, typically the woman keeps kicks the man out. And if he wants custodial rights, he has to go to court. He has to bear the expense and the inconvenience. And be, and it's and, you know, and if he has an arrest record or if he has anything in his background that's unsavory, he may not want to go to court. He may not want to go near the courthouse. Um, he may simply not be able to afford it. And so what you see is this vast discrepancy in custody outcomes between married and unmarried couples that have very little to do with the formal law and that had not been in the interdisciplinary literature. I mean, divorce lawyers know this. But, uh, but it's not really in the literature in a way that anybody paid attention to before we wrote it. Now, Naomi and I are very proud of doing that because what it involves is we, we think of ourselves as consumers of the empirical literature. Our empirical contributions tend to be doing things like reading census reports and red families versus blue families. We had put together how the country is changing in terms of family form and how the change in family form that sounds needed to the vote. But we had put a lot of that together before the demographers had created a composite uh, that identified that nationally. Uh, by the time the book came out, we could just cite other people whose empirical work was better than ours. Um, but we started with some empirical ideas other people weren't exploring. We took the empirical literature that was out there, we wove it into a narrative that explained legal developments. And the, that explanation was novel. So I, I view myself as incredibly influenced by the empirical work that's out there. And, you know, I'm going to a conference this fall uh, in honor of Peg Brinig, uh, with whom I started, who talked me in family law, I heard Mason years and years ago. And what I'm going to say about Peg's work uh, in particular is that as somebody who's a lawyer first and then got a PhD in, in economics, the empirical questions she asks are different from the empirical questions economists ask in looking at the same data sets. And so her work is quite original um, in a way that's often not fully appreciated uh, by other lawyers or by economists unless you know both fields. And you say, oh, yeah, the questions she's looking at are really interesting because they're different questions. And, um, and so I, I have really appreciated folks who are doing empirical work that get at questions important to legal developments which are often not the same questions that sociologists or economists are asking. Do you think there's a danger for younger scholars in particular when they stick their toe in the empirical water, swirl it around a bit, and maybe try to do what you've done and synthesize existing literature and then apply it to law? Do you think there are any dangers there for junior faculty? Oh, they're huge dangers. The first thing is there are two different fields with two different definitions of what is methodological rigor. And I can tell you, I, I have been at any number of law professor discussions where you read something that is in a, a difficult to conduct in really original empirical study, and law professors go, oh, I, you know, 
it proves something we already knew, or it doesn't say anything terribly profound. And the originality is really in um, pulling together the material uh, and pulling it together in a way no one's done before. So sometimes the hardest part is simply the collection of the data, and then, you know, how good is your regression analysis? But most law professors glaze over in any discussion. I can tell you I do of a regression analysis. Even if I understand its importance, I want to know uh, what's the answer. Does it support or undercut the argument I want to make? I, you know, the um, methodological rigor of the study itself. Uh, you know, I, 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 you know, I read them like somebody who is uh, putting on a case or about to conduct a cross-examination to support where I want to go. And I'm quite happy to take it apart if it doesn't. Um, but it's just a whole different way of reading empirical work. And so if you're coming before a faculty that knows very little about it, um, we had, it's interesting, we had somebody on our faculty who came up for tenure uh, not too long ago, who I think was doing some interesting empirical work at the intersection of three different fields. And, uh, you know, his first couple of years on tenure track, the faculty was really negative. And over time, there was growing appreciation when he successfully got tenure. But part of it was an education process. Um, so, you know, the people in the substantive legal field felt the work was simplistic. The people who had PhDs in non-legal fields felt the methodology of the empirical work was simplistic. Uh, the people who knew uh, the third field, which had to do with the practice area, um, knew very little about the specifics in the area he was working in. And over time, uh, what happened in the successful tenure vote was in education of the faculty, the putting together these three different literatures had never been done before. And that the innovation in the work uh, had to be assessed in light of the fact that the methodology was original, the subject area wasn't terribly well explored in academic work, and the conclusions to be drawn from it uh, were of a different nature from what you expect from a traditional law review article. Well, it, it took a while to educate the faculty as to what the contribution underlying that work was. Um, it's incredibly risky to do that. Um, so it, if we could switch a some switch gears for a second here, and I'd like to ask about what sorts of things do you find turn you off or unhelpful that younger scholars tend to be doing when they're writing or presenting that you wish you could tell them but can't tell them to their face? <laughs> well, in family law, <laughs> let's talk about family law. So on the one hand, I, so right now I'm writing a book about um, the intersection between women, the economy, and changes in the family, okay? And uh, the younger scholars I'm totally jazzed about, mostly people not yet in the academy, who are coming out of uh, traditional law firms and they have a, such a generationally different view of law and economics, corporate law, securities law, that kind of stuff. And then I meet the younger family law people, and there's just a total generational difference on attitudes about marriage, about, uh, you know, uh, 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 not, not just the gender part, which I'm aware of, but the, um, 
uh, single parent families, uh, non-marital groups, that whole thing, and a whole new set of vocabulary uh, coming along with it. So um, the thing that I would say to both groups uh, that's hard for both groups is the generational mindsets are just different. And I find on the corporate law and economics area, I love the junior people. They're saying stuff that's music to my ears. I think it's so much more exciting than anybody my age. Uh, in family law, I don't feel the same way, maybe because it's my field. And the question is why? And I, I've tried to be self-critical about that. So young people coming in do have a different view of the world. The world they're seeing is different. That generational difference in viewpoints is going to play out politically. It, it always does. That's not new. But on the family, the piece of it that uh, my co-author Naomi Khan and I have been resisting is that the young people want to show they're trendy by being totally skeptical about marriage. But underlying the difference between marriage and non-marriage are functional differences. So when you talk about people who are making a very conscious decision to live together and not get married, who often are my junior colleagues, um, they just view marriage as an old buddy buddy kind of thing. And those of us who study this, um, uh, you know, who study it, try hard to see it from the viewpoint of not just what are my attitudes as somebody who's about to have her 40th wedding anniversary, who actually believe in marriage, but rather about what's going on around us. And so one of the things going on with marriage is a class divide. And what and the reasons why a 22-year-old woman uh, living in a relatively poor community who has love, who is living with and has um, you know, the father of her children living with her, the reason they don't get married is really kind of different from the reasons why some of my junior colleagues choose to live with somebody and not get married. Um, they're not worried about whether or not he's going to get arrested. Uh, they're not worried about whether his credit card bills are going to result in her assets being seized. Um, and so there's a difference between, I think, a generational change in perspective where, you know, on transgender issues, uh, I really am deferring to my younger colleagues. I think on the whole question of what gender means, uh, there's a lot of exciting work being done. And those of us who are older are trying to get used to it. I mean, it's a new vocabulary. It's a different way of thinking. Some of it is really original and I'm very excited by it. But I find some of the assumptions about marriage are rooted in privilege. So the very people who like talking about, you know, who think it's trendy to be married, marriage is this old buddy-duddy kind of thing, I think often are missing uh, the class dimension of this. And uh, the different meanings institutions have when you take class and race into account. So on the one hand, they're really, really eager to talk about class and race. But on the other hand, um, many of us find that we fear that in an effort to be enlightened based on their own experiences, uh, they are missing um, a dimension out there that they ought to be troubled by and would, if they were 
more um, embedded into the communities. And so I think that's the hardest thing. And I find it hard. Uh, when I do interdisciplinary work, uh, I'm pretty good at figuring out what law professors want to hear. Uh, it's taken me a while to figure out what non-law professors want to hear. And I think that that generational difference is there in almost every field as well. Um, it's not just that we have different viewpoints generationally. Um, it is also that what people mean by the same vocabulary is often different. If I can paraphrase you, it sounds like what you're saying is don't get lost in your own experience. Try not to make your own anecdote apply to the entire field you're examining and pay attention to the either the empirical work or the data that's coming out or just other people before you forge a path in whatever field you're moving in. Exactly. And, you know, family law, let's face it, we, we all have families. <laughs> we all have some grief, angst about our families. Um, and so trying to distinguish between <laughs> living through your own experiences versus generalizing. For example, on LGBT issues, I've been writing recently about the convergence between um, the law that governs, say, step parents versus unmarried um, same-sex couples. And um, they overlap, but the feel of the two bodies of doctrine are different. And now the same-sex couples can marry. I think you're going to see a growing uh, reconciliation of the doctrines. But what it means in Kentucky and what it means in California and what it means in Minnesota and what it means in Michigan are give you four different answers. That's really great to capture. Yeah, I think that's really great advice. And um, I'd just like to, to thank you for all the advice that you've given us so far and for your time. And we really enjoyed having you on the show. We hope you'll come back. Oh, I'd be happy to. Okay, great. And thank you for doing this. Of course. Recorder. That's it. Off we go. Hello, everyone. My name is John, John Shuttleworth. I live on Godford Drive with my charming second wife, Mary. Oh, my God.